So let's talk about God. What is God? Where is God? Who is God? And how does God inhabit our stories, our hopes, our fears, our dreams? Where is God taking all of this, if in fact God is taking all of it anywhere at all? This is a series on God. I'm not sure how long it's going to go, but I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to share my own journey of understanding God through stories. I'm going to share some odd but poignant stories found in the bewildering, beguiling scriptures. And I'm going to invite you to bring your stories and enter into it as well. Enjoy. Well, hey, peeps. Uh, Here we are, God Part 2. Thank you, first of all, to those of you who emailed me uh, about God Part 1, saying that it was helpful, refreshing. I sensed it hit a nerve. So we're going to keep going with this series. I'm not sure how long we're going to go with it. And by we, I mean me, of course, uh, but also you. Excuse me. Wow. Um, So God Part 2, today we're going to look at deconstructing dualism. But just a quick reminder, where we were last week is sort of the intro that I talked about that a lot of people are noticing a shift happening, um, that 500 years ago, we were given the great gift of the Reformation. We were given the gift of being able to not have mediators between us and God, but read the Bible for ourselves and believe that in the priesthood of all believers, we were given the great gift of the enlightenment and scientific reason, uh, where we didn't have to believe in sort of magical thinking God. And those were all, all great gifts. But we looked at the fact that as Phyllis Tickle and others have written about, we're probably in the middle of another shift uh, on how we understand God and something like the Reformation, like enlightenment, but obviously on a whole different plane or level is happening now. We're beginning to see it. If you listen to Zach Hoag's interview from last week, he would call that an apocalypse, which is basically just a revealing that the current culture right now is revealing something in that the the ways that the church and other religious institutions have existed for many hundreds of years is actually dying out. But that's not a bad thing, that it could be a good thing, that it'll be resurrected. That's what Zach writes in his great book, uh, The Light is Winning. So last week we talked about a shift that's happening and that God is becoming and unbecoming. That great quote from Meister Eckhart. And then we looked at how the Hebrew language and the Hebrew scriptures uh, can be so helpful, primarily in looking at uh, the Bible as multifaceted and having many, many many meanings with every turning of the gem, with every reading of certain scriptures, that we don't have to be bound to believing that every single one passage has one meaning. If we just work hard enough, if we study enough, we can find that universally true one meaning. Now, there are some things in the Bible, certainly, uh, lest you freak out right now and think I'm a universalist, which I'm really not at all. There are some very universally true things within the Bible. And I don't have time to go into all of those things. What I'm saying is the the way that the Jewish scholars look at the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew language, because the Hebrew language, there's only like 7,000 words and many words have to do all kinds of heavy lifting. 
that reflects a certain way to understand the Bible, that depending on the kind of situation that we are in and where we're, our culture is at, we can see the Bible saying actually lots of different things. And that's not dangerous. That's actually a good thing. That's the way that for most of history, people would have understood the Bible. And then the third thing we looked at last week is we were trying to find a way to transcend the false binary that of the conservative, progressive, uh, tired conversation. And even that looking at Jesus's followers, that they themselves transcended that, that there was tax collectors and religious zealots, which would have been sworn enemies. And so even in Jesus's core uh, set of disciples and friends, there was these massively differing religious, socioeconomic, and philosophical views that had to get really heated and they had to live in that tension. And so we tried to find and we tried to just name the fact that there is a third way of seeing beyond the binaries and seeing beyond our tribes. And really that's where we're going today when we talk about dualism. We're going to deconstruct dualism and I'm going to talk about what's helpful about dualism and how it really helped us shape part of what we think, but then how limiting it is and how tempting it is to continue to live with a dualistic worldview and how if we do, we will miss what God is doing in the world. So let me read a quote to you from our good friend, Richard Rohr. Uh, and he writes this dualistic thinking is the well practiced pattern of knowing most things by comparison. And for some reason, once you compare or label things, that is judge them, you almost always conclude that one is good and the other is less good or even bad. Don't take my word for it. Roar writes, just notice your own thoughts and reactions. You will see that you will move almost automatically into a pattern of up or down, in or out, for me or against me, right or wrong, black or white, gay or straight, good or bad. So let's, let's take a second to understand where dualism came from, what it is, and how it's helpful. So when you're small and your understanding about life and things is small, the only way to understand tall is by comparing it with short. The only way to understand night is by comparing it with day. The only way to understand waking up is, is by comparing it with falling asleep. And even in a lot of the stories for kids, the only way we understand really about good is by looking at bad. And so we have these really clear, really easy to define categories. We have these heroes of the stories and we have villains of the stories. And uh, the hero always uh, goes through a challenge and it looks like the villain is winning and we start anguishing. But then in the end, the hero wins. And as a kid, uh, that that is it's helpful to know that um, there are good things and bad things. And that is helpful when you're driving. Dualistic thinking is really helpful because when you get to an intersection, you turn right or left. And that's actually a really helpful thing. You can't hold the tension of going right and left. <laughs> um, and so certainly uh, dualism uh, helps us 
even figure out differences. And that is a really, really good thing. Where it gets less good is when we take it to where dualism, when we, when we try to get in the vehicle that is dualism to take us farther than dualism can take us. Does that make sense? Dualism can only take us so far. It deals with the concrete. It deals with some early patterns of brain development. And, um, but it, it will never, dualism will never take you into the deep water waters of spiritual transformation. Because once you have even a beginning uh, look at how complicated life is and how uh, interesting life is and how you really can't categorize people as easily as you think you can, you realize that dualistic thinking uh, can't take you further. So here's, here's what happens in, in dualistic thinking. Uh, so uh, I grew up in a kind of religious tribe uh, in my Baptist fundamentalist church where uh, we honestly and really believed, and I don't know why we believed this, and I don't remember anyone ever saying this out loud. So I would just say I grew up believing that Catholics actually were not Christians, that, and they weren't Christians because they didn't believe the right things. They believed in Mary. Uh, they believed that the Eucharist was actually the body and blood of Christ that turned into the body and blood of Christ. Actually, uh, they had some funky understandings of, um, of Hades, uh, or, um, uh, gosh, what's the, uh, what's the in-between place? Is, is it Hades? All of a sudden my mind is going blank. Uh, that in-between place where it's purgatory, where you're sort of paying for your sins before you can get into heaven. And because they didn't believe the right things about God, about Jesus, about the afterlife, about the Eucharist, then they, then they weren't going to heaven. Well, that worked pretty well as, as far, you know, as long as I didn't meet a Catholic. But then when I was in seventh grade, our family moved from Southern California to Belgium. And I went to school at a Catholic school. <laughs> Maybe you see where this is going. And then I started to meet people who were Catholics, who had a vibrant faith, teachers and students who had di a different faith than mine, but a vibrant faith in the Christ, a vibrant joy. Uh, and definitely would say some things that I thought, wow, that's interesting, or wow, that makes me feel nervous or scared. But I had to really expand the way I thought about, um, about Catholics. And that sounds like such a funny thing. Maybe you're laughing to yourself right now. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're thinking, man, I grew up in exactly the same system. Some of you grew up in systems where you know, even people of your own denomination weren't seen as Christians because maybe they didn't speak in tongues. And if you didn't speak in tongues, if you couldn't speak in tongues, then that was that was the sign that you hadn't received the full measure of the Spirit of God. So you weren't really in. And so, um, you know, so there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And what we see in especially um, religious systems that are sort of closed systems 
is that people are, um, especially now in the 21st century, people are in on the basis of what they say they believe. As long as they believe in a certain set of things, or at least they say they believe in a certain set of things, then they're accepted in, you know, arms wide open. But if they don't say that they agree to the certain set of things, not only are they not accepted into the fellowship, but they are looked on with skepticism about their own faith. And if they really don't believe the things that this tradition believes, then they probably aren't the real deal. Now, this has enormous ramifications. But what I, what I, what I want to talk about is like what, what, what happens and sort of when we um, hold on to this dualistic thinking, especially as it relates to another people group, here's what we do. So number one, we choose a side. We can't stand holding two differing thoughts like, gosh, maybe what I believe about Jesus or whatever, even though it's different than that other group and they believe this, somehow in some mysterious way, it all belongs. Because that's so uncomfortable, we choose a side. So we say, I'm over on side A, you're over on side B, and that's, I, I just, I have to be over here in this side. I remember years ago, uh, there was, I was, I was sitting down with a woman and one of her friends, uh, a few years before this meeting that I had with this woman, came out to her and said that she was gay. And then several years later, and this is the reason why I was meeting with this woman, she said, my friend invited me to her wedding. And she had found a partner, they were gonna get married. And the big uh, conflict that this woman, who's a good woman, and she really was wrestling, she didn't know whether she could go to the wedding because she didn't believe it was right that these two women were getting married. And I could tell she was anguishing over this and she wasn't evil and she wasn't bad. She just was really in a, in a dilemma. And that, um, she didn't know it and I didn't even know it at, at, at the time, but what she was wrestling with was this idea that you, it's, that, that, that you can't hold two differing views at the same time. Like what if, and I don't know whether she went to the wedding or not, but what if she could hold her view and go to the wedding and celebrate it fully. Like, is that possible? Dualistic thinking would say no. Is there a better way to think about that? Even if you personally don't believe that certain thing, could you celebrate with someone else who believes a different thing and believe somehow in the mysterious... Uh, reality that is God and God's people, that it somehow all belongs. So number one, we choose a side because it's easier than holding two thoughts. That's why it's so hard to do uh, the mysterious thing. Number two, and this is the real tough one, we all do it. We seek out facts that confirm what we want to believe. And we do this with the Bible all the time. I think we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. I think, and that is such a scary thing, but because it's such a huge collection of different kinds of literature, there's poetry in there. There's letters written from 
certain apostles to certain congregations. There's historical accounts. There's apocalyptic literature. There's the gospels, which is, you know, accounts of the life of Jesus. There's all these different views. And like, um, there's all these different stories. Like, for example, the book of Job, the book of Job is, is largely considered the oldest book of the Bible. It's not written, it's not put first, but it, it's, it's largely considered the, the, the most ancient book of the Bible. And it opens with this bizarre scene. We're in the celestial realm at some point, and God is having a debate with Satan. And the Satan, the adversary, comes up to God and says, "Hey, have you thought about Job? You know." And Job's or God says, "Hey, man, um, you know, Job's the most righteous person ever." And basically, Satan says, "Yeah, he's only righteous because his life is going well. What about if his life wasn't going so well? Do you mind if I, you know, take some things away from him so that we can test to see if he really is the real deal or not?" And and then God says, "Go ahead, go for it." And so. Job does. He loses his family. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. And then his friends come over and have this bizarre, they shame him and say the reason why all these things happened is because you must have, must have did something wrong. And then we have this, and then Job goes to town on these guys. And so the book of Job is this bizarre uh, retelling of this, of this story. But the way that it starts, it's like, some of the questions is like who who was there to record that conversation between God and Satan? Have you ever thought about that? Like, like did are we to believe that that actually happened? And, and and if so, this I mean I'm not talking about Job's life. I'm talking about the conversation that happened with Satan. And maybe it did. And maybe in some mysterious way God revealed that to the writer of Job. And the writer was like, oh my gosh, it's so weird. I can't believe I'm writing this. But it's but it's you know it's that way. Or is there a way of understanding that as there, you know, the writer wanted to set up um, the story in such a way. And so he used a, a poetic device, used a literary device. And, and he said, this is what it often, like, um, basically to say, like, when, when life goes crazy and you lose everything, this is what it feels like. It feels almost like God gave Satan permission to take everything away from you. And if you believe that about God, what is the result, right? And so um, if you, okay, here's where it gets interesting. If you have a less than literal view of, of the Bible, then you're going to gravitate toward the understanding that I just explained. If you have a more literal view of the Bible, then you're going to you're going to believe that it's absolute that there was an actual conversation that actually happened. God somehow dictated it to people and that's that that is the way it goes down. And you'll find other things in the scriptures to to back you up on both sides. See what I mean? And so um uh, this is and this is human nature to do this. So everybody does it. If you think you're the pure one that that you look at the Bible and it's just you you just find the truth in it and you're just you're just reading it and you have no bias and there's no um, reading it through your own filters you're just you're just reading the scriptures, uh, gang you're not, <laughs> and neither am I. Part of humility and leaving non dual leaving dualistic thinking is admitting, oh my goodness I I do that I did that. So we choose a side, we seek out facts that confirm what we want, what we want to believe, 
And then number three, we dehumanize the other side. It's really interesting. Uh, I was just having lunch with my friend Matt today, and we were talking about dualism actually and all this stuff. I am so lucky. I get to have friend have uh, lunch with fascinating people and talk about dualism. <laughs> so fun. And we were just sort of reflecting on like in the current political reality in the U.S. right now. Um, you know, we have a president that's very controversial, um, President Trump. And his disapproval rating, I think right now is 59%. His approval rating is, you know, 36. There's, there's, I just, I'm 46 in my lifetime. I don't, I don't remember ever there, there, there being such, um, dehumanizing of the other side. And that has happened a lot, but you see the dehumanization of the enemy from both sides. If you want to say side A and side B from the left, it's interesting. Um, we dehumanize president Trump by refusing to even utter his name. We call him 45. That's what, you know, you see that 45 is doing this 45 is doing that. And you can disagree with the president. Um, I do, frankly, um, but um, let's be aware of how we're dehumanizing even someone, especially someone that we have that radical of disagreements with. Like, can we just agree to call him President Trump? I mean, like in in the in in the vein of of moving toward non-dualistic thinking and not demonizing and dehumanizing the enemy. Can we at least just agree to call him President Trump? Now, of course, from his mouth and from his Twitter feed, there's lots and lots of dehumanizing language and characterizations. Um, but this is what happens when, when you are convinced that you're on the right side, you have sought out all the facts that confirm what, what you want to believe, and then you've dehumanized the enemy. Congratulations, you are living in the land of dualism. And you cannot understand the God that exists beyond our dualistic thinking when we're stuck in either or, black, right, black, white, gay, straight, right, wrong, uh, good, bad. We will, we, will, we will remain at a very, very basic and elementary understanding of God if we insist on thinking dualistically. So one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures is uh, in Genesis 32, and we have Jacob. Uh, the scene is that he is um, he is finally going to meet his brother Esau, and he's been in conflict with his brother Esau ever since he ran away uh, because he basically cheated Esau out of his birthright, and so Jacob got blessed instead of Esau. Jacob fled for his life, and in the meantime, many, many years have passed. Jacob has a family, and um, but he's but this meeting between he and Esau is, is about to happen. Esau has become a powerful warrior with lots and lots of, with a big tribe, a big clan, lots of soldiers, and Jacob's about to meet with them, and he's sitting by this river, and he sends his whole family across the river, but he stays behind. And he goes to sleep that night. Uh, and he's met by, you might call it an angel, you might call it God. Um, but essentially the Hebrew word there is he's met by a messenger. And all night we read, they wrestle. And it's like this anguish. 
it's, you know, if like, can you imagine wrestling all night with someone? And, but an interesting thing happens. The messenger asks Jacob his name and Jacob's been the deceiver and, um, you know, for his whole life and, and he's manipulated people and he's been this and he's been that. And remember he pretended to be Esau for his father, Isaac, in order to get the blessing. So his identity has been very, it's, it's been the subject of his whole life. Who is this person? Is he a manipulator or is he something else? And so Jacob finally says, Jacob, basically, you know, um, you know, that's, that's, I, I am who I am. And then they, they get into an interesting conversation where um, the messenger says, let go of me. Like it's daybreak. It's morning. We've been wrestling all night. Let go of me. <laughs> and Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. So then he says, what's your name, Jacob? And then the messenger says, from now on, your name will be Israel. And the name of Israel means he who struggles with people and with God and overcomes. And then, so he gets renamed, he gets blessed, and then the messenger touches him on like the hip and he wrenches that out of the socket and he walks, Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. So he gets up from that and he says, oh my goodness, like God was in this place and I didn't know it. God was in this river, God was in that dream and I did not know it. And then he goes to meet with his brother Esau and his brother Esau has is magnanimous. He has a forgiving spirit and they reconcile. And it's just, it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful and stunning. But in that meeting, we see like, what side was the messenger on? Was he on Jacob's side? Was he on Esau's side? Was he on God's side? And it's interesting again, like the sides are so represented in the story by the river. Esau's on the other side of the river. He's coming. Jacob's family's on the other side of the river. Um, who knows what's going to happen to them? He's, Jacob stays on the other side of the river. So it's set up to like be a story about sides. But the messenger doesn't choose a side. The messenger is only seeking out the facts um, that are that he's curious about. Who are you, Jacob? You know? Um, and then um, instead of de dehumanizing Jacob, uh, he names him, he blesses him. And so he gets named, Jacob gets named and blessed, but he also gets wounded. And so like you think, well, okay, if this messenger, if that's supposed to be God, you know, I get the blessing part, but wounding, really? Like God has to wound you so you, so you walk with a limp the rest of your life? And the, and, and, and the question is, how can you hold those two opposing things? I meet with God and I get blessed and I get named and I also get wounded. It's like unbelievable. Where, what side is God on? Is he on Jacob's side? Is he on Esau's side? Is he on their father Isaac's side? You know? Um, and so I think this story is about many, many, many things. And if we were to talk about all of them, there would not be enough time and all the garage band tracks in all the world <laughs> to talk about it. But I think one of the dimensions for us, as we look at God, who is God 
is that God is not on your side. God is not on their side. God can't be owned and God is not a mascot. God is not the mascot for your team who cheers for you. God is doing something new in the world. God is out ahead of us, always at work, always making all things new. And sometimes God wounds us and sometimes God blesses us, but God is always, it seems, in the business of transcending sides. So the great sin of any religious group is to believe that they have the corner of the market on God and they own God. And just by saying that you believe certain things that you now are on God's side and God is on your side. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. If the scriptures teach anything, it's this. God is on the side of those who are being oppressed. And I know there's a lot of ways to be oppressed. But when Jesus says to the rich young ruler who's asking about eternal life, hey, you've obeyed the commandments. Yep, you're, you're doing really great. Do this and you live. Oh, one more thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And then the rich young ruler goes away sad um, because it's really difficult if, you are, if you're in a position of power and you feel entitled. I'm just, I'm just saying that the scriptures seem clear on this one. It's gonna be difficult for you because you're gonna assume God is fighting against the oppressed people in your favor. You're going to assume God is on your side, following your agenda, and you're going to keep perpetrating, uh, I'm, and I'm going to say this strong word, evil uh, on people that are oppressed, and you will assume that you're doing it because of God. And that was the story of Saul before he became Paul. He did what he did to Christians because he felt absolutely like he was following God in that. So if we're going to understand this God, this, this God that uh, there's a shift happening, um, this God beyond the binaries, we have to take a long, hard look at the ways in which we think dualistically. And we have to climb out of those patterns of thinking into a much more expansive, much more mysterious, um, but utterly much more beautiful picture of God and who God is. So hopefully this conversation about dualism uh, helps you understand why I end each podcast with our mantra, which is we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash this good word. The truth was you knew you were losing that fight in your suburban back.